It was my purpose the first Lord's Day of the year, back there in January, to preach a motto text to the congregation. That is what I normally do. I bring a watchword, if you like, for the year that lies ahead. Well, the Lord had other plans, and so there's been a period of time in between, and you could argue, well, why, what would be the point in going on with a motto text when you're near the end of February? Well, I'm going to bring that motto text. I believe the Lord would have us to do that, and I believe it to be the right word for the congregation. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, and let us read the first two verses. The motto text will really be the last sentence of verse 1 and the first sentence of verse 2, but we'll read the two verses. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Earlier in the service, I read another portion of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and you may have noticed there that there is a reference to running a race. Verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9 says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, in other words, everybody in the race runs, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. The common theme in these two portions is the running of a race. No doubt you're aware that every four years there is what might be described as the biggest event in the world's athletic calendar, the Olympic Games. Men and women from various countries gather together to compete in numerous sports and to try their best to represent their nation, their state, their country, and to win medals. Now, the modern Olympics had their beginning in the ancient Olympics, and they are quite different from the original Olympic sports. The original Olympic Games originated in ancient Greece, and those games were held in which men from various tribes gathered to engage in sporting competition. The Apostle Paul, in the day in which he lived, was well aware of the existence of such sporting competition. And the Gentile Christians to whom he wrote in Corinth, and also the Jewish believers among the Hebrews to whom he wrote in that epistle, were obviously very familiar with these games. They knew all about the stadia, the great amphitheaters that dotted the landscape where they lived. 
And so Paul used the illustration of Olympic sports to exhort them to godliness. He actually likened the Christian life to the world of athletics. And you notice this especially in 1 Corinthians 9, where he refers to more than one sport. You could argue that he's referring to boxing or wrestling, and he's certainly referring to running. And again in Hebrews 12, he borrows this illustration from the world of athletics. He compares the Christian life to a race that has to be run. Believers are exhorted to run with patience the race which is set before you. They are, to quote the words of 1 Corinthians 9 and 24, to run so that they may obtain, to run that they might gain the prize. So the Christian life is a race to be run. Now I want us to think about this in relation to the motto text for 2024. There is a race to be run by each and every one of us. And I want to draw some facts from the Scriptures about running that race. And I have some very simple thoughts to pass on to you. First of all, I want us to consider the origin of this race. The origin of the race. It has to be said that the race is not run by everyone. Of course, not everybody in the world gets to take part in the Olympic Games. Not even all the athletes in the world get to take part in the Olympic Games. But there is a race that is run. It's not run by everyone. And the reason for that is that not everybody has been entered for the race. You'll see that Paul in Hebrews 12 speaks about the race set before us. At the end of verse 1, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. This is one of those family texts in the Bible. It doesn't say the race that is set before you. It's the race that is set before us. Again, it reminds me of that statement that people often make. Christ died for you. That's actually not a quotation from Scripture. The quotation, to give it its correct wording, is Christ died for us. It's a family text. It's not a verse that belongs to everyone. It's not an overture in the gospel. It's a statement of assurance. Christ died for us. When we preach to sinners, we are not asking them to believe that Christ died for them in particular at that point, but that they might understand that they are sinners in need of God's salvation. There is only one Savior. That Savior is offered to them, and if they come to that Savior, He will save them. And then they'll be able to say, Christ died for us, because they've come to know Him in that way. So you have a family text in Hebrews 12. goes on into verse 2 from verse 1, obviously. But notice that verse 1 says, Seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, 
let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. There's at least four references to that collective pronoun, us. It's a family text. And you do not have any right to include yourself in that number, in that collective pronoun, unless you're a child of God. There are people who are entered into the race. Think about the Olympics. In a foot race, even in the original ones back in Greece, there were many who did not qualify to run. They didn't get into the race because they didn't qualify. There are only certain people who are allowed to race. There are only certain ones who actually get into the race. And quite simply, the fact is that you become a qualifier in this Christian race when you're born again of God's Spirit. That's how you get into the race. When God quickens you, brings you to a knowledge of your sins forgiven and of the truth as it is in Christ. So every single person who is saved by God's grace is a runner in this race. And they automatically are entered for this race in which they run for the prize. Now maybe I'm speaking to people and you've no real experience physically of running. You never were a runner and you never will be a runner in this life. In my early life, I was a runner. I was a sprinter. I used to take part in what they called in the UK the 100 metres and the 200 metres sprint or the 100-yard dash, as it used to be called here, or 200 yards. I didn't like the long races. I didn't like marathons. I didn't like middle-distance running. They were too much like hard work. But I like sprinting. I was good at it. I was the top sprinter in high school. I want to talk about that today. I like to run. I like to sprint. I like the competition. But even if you're never going to be a runner in this life, if you're a believer in Christ, you are in a race. You are running. And you're running the race that the Lord has set before you. And you've begun to run in that race the day that you came to Jesus as a sinner for salvation. He entered you in the race that day. That's when it started. And that's the only way that you ever get into the race when you come as a sinner to Jesus. The Bible says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look unto me. That's the Lord speaking. And that's how the Christian life starts. It starts with a look. We often sing, there's life for a look at the crucified one. There's life at this moment for thee. Then look, sinner, look unto him who was slain to him who was nailed to the tree. Look, look, look and live. There is life for a look at the crucified one. There's life at this moment for thee. So you look to Christ to save you, and he saves you, but that's only the beginning of looking to Jesus. Because if you look at Hebrews 12, 1, it's talking about running the race, and it goes on into the second verse saying, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You're running the race looking 
onto Jesus. It means continuing to look. How do you start to run the race? You look to Christ and you continue to look to him as you run the Christian race. You know, the trouble with a lot of people is that they're trying to run the race without ever having been entered for it. No matter how hard they try, it's in vain because they're not part of the race. They're not saved. What I really mean is those who try to live a Christian life without first being made a Christian. Trying to live by God's commandments without ever, ever having had a change of heart through faith in Jesus Christ. You have to be entered into the race. And that happens by regeneration. An unsaved person can't run in the Christian race. They can't run in the Christian race because of several things. If you're not saved, you're not able to run in this race because you're running in the wrong attire. You've got the wrong clothing on. You know, to run an Olympic race, someone who was a sprinter or a middle distance runner, one had to be properly outfitted. They had to have on the proper gear for running. It's the same in the spiritual race. You have to have on the proper attire. You have to be dressed in the proper clothing. You cannot run, for instance, in the garments of your sinfulness. You cannot enter the race in the filthy clothing of your natural condition for sin keeps you back. You can't get into the race wearing those filthy garments and you can't get into the race wearing the attire of your own self-righteousness either. You know, sometimes people have an idea in their minds that they have some kind of merit. You know, I'm not such a bad person. I'm not like the guy or the woman down the street. I'm not like this one or that one. I'm actually quite a decent person. I'm really quite good. Now, I may, I may not be perfect, but I'm really not bad. That's the idea that many have about themselves. The reason I know that is because people have said things like that to me. I've met folks like that. Oh, I'm not so bad. I don't do anybody any harm. How often have I heard that? I don't do anybody any harm. Now, that's self-righteousness. That's thinking you have some merits of your own or some apparent goodness of your own. And that's all it is. It's apparent. It's not real. It doesn't satisfy God and it proves that you're not fit to run the race. If you take the secular athletic competition that Paul is borrowing from in these scriptures, men and women would qualify for races on merit. They would get into the race on merit. Unless, of course, they've been taking drugs and then they get disqualified. But usually they qualify on merit and according to their ability. That's how they get into the race. But not so in God's race. Not in the Christian race. You don't qualify by your own merit because you have none. You don't qualify to run this race because of your own ability because you haven't got any. As someone said, salvation is not by attainment, it's by atonement. It's not by attainment, but by atonement. 
We often sing, don't we? No works of merit now I plead, but Jesus take for all my need. No righteousness in me is found except upon redemption ground. So how do we get into the Christian race? How do we get into the Christian race when we're properly attired? When we are dressed in the robe of Christ's righteousness. Something else about the unconverted, they can't get into this Christian race, not only because they're running in the wrong attire, but because they're running in the wrong arena. They're running in the wrong arena. You know, an athlete can't run an Olympic race if he's at the wrong venue. And that has happened, by the way, in history, where someone has showed up at, a, at the wrong stadium. And of course, that's not where the race was taking place. They were at the wrong venue. They're at the wrong arena. They were not on the right track, if you like. You have to be on the right track in order to compete. And you know the problem with you and me by nature as sinners, we're born on the wrong track. We are on the wrong track. We're all on that broad road that leadeth to destruction. We're in the wrong arena for running the race. And what needs to happen is that the Lord needs to get us off of that wrong track and onto the right track. And we can only get into that race, onto the race that's run on the narrow road that leads to life eternal, when we confess our sins, when we repent of those sins, and when we receive Christ as our Savior. Then God puts us into the right arena. So as we think today of the race that Paul is referring to here, and we consider the origin of the race, we have to ask the question, are you in the running? Are you in the race? Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. This makes us think then of the obstacles in the race. Hebrews 12.1, Paul mentions these obstacles in the latter part of the verse. <clears throat> Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. There are obstacles to running the race. They're referred to as every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Now, whenever you're placed in the race by God, you come to Christ, you confess your sins, you ask the Lord to save you, you ask him that he might help you to live for him and be his child. You will then want to run well. You'll want to do well in the race. And in order for that to happen, all the impediments and all the hindrances and all the obstacles must be thrown off. I referred to many moons ago when I used to compete as a teenager in high school and other athletics. I used to show up the track. I used to show up at the, the venue. And I would be wearing a track suit. And I'd probably have on sneakers or something like that. Whenever I then was ready to run the 100 meters race, 
I did not keep that tracksuit on. I did not continue to wear those sneakers. I didn't certainly put on an overcoat and a hat and gloves and hobnailed boots. No, I changed from the sneakers into spikes, which were so lean and small you hardly feel them on your feet. I wore a slight vest and a pair of very short shorts that enabled me to run in that 100 meters run. See, I was clothed in the proper fashion for running in a sprint. Can you imagine turning up at a race like that with a big heavy overcoat and mountain boots and say, right, I'm ready to run? How idiotic would that be? How foolish would that be? When an athlete goes to compete in a race, he doesn't put on those things that are going to be impediments to him running a good race. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with an overcoat. There's nothing wrong with boots in the right setting. But you certainly don't want to be putting them on if you're going to run a race. They are unnecessary weights that will hold back the runner in the race. This is what Paul is talking about. If you're going to run the race, you set aside, you lay aside every weight and that which does so easily beset you. I know a little about horse racing. And in horse racing, sometimes they have what they call handicap races. Where the horses and the jockeys are handicapped by weights that are placed upon them. And that extra weight attached to the animal or to the jockey means that it becomes a fair race. But when you're running a race like a foot race, a sprint or whatever, you'll want to put away all unnecessary weights that are going to hold you back from running properly. When I think about those weights that Paul talks about, lay aside every weight, I think we can say that these represent many things in our Christian lives which in themselves, in certain circumstances, may feel to be legitimate There's nothing wrong with them in themselves. But if we're not careful, they can become weights and hindrances to our performing well in the race. There are things that you have to do on a daily basis, obviously to support your family and your home. But there are things that can get out of kilter in our lives. And we spend too much time with them. And we can involve ourselves in leisure time and sports or whatever it may be. But those things, if they take over our lives, they become unnecessary weights, hindrances to our performing well in the Christian race. I may have a hobby, for example. It's good and right in its place. But if I get so carried away with that hobby, it keeps me from the house of God or from the prayer meeting or from reading my Bible and spending time with God, then it's out of place. And it's weighing me down. Notice in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, quote, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And he's not just talking there about martyrdom. About literally losing your life. He's talking about those things that can take the place of that which is right. 
We're not to let anything hold us back from running the race. Every weight, every weight must be laid aside. Spiritually speaking, you have to get the track suit off and get the sneakers off and get the spikes on and run the race. But notice that Paul doesn't just mention every weight. He also says, and the sin which doth so easily beset us. The laying aside, the putting away of sin. Now there are the legitimate things, as I said, in the right place, but they become illegitimate in the wrong place. Every weight. But then there's the out and out evil things. The sin that does so easily beset us. It's definitely an obstacle to running the Christian race. Notice it says, which so easily, which does so easily beset us. Isn't that true? How easy it is to fall into sin. How easy it is to get carried away with the things of the flesh and the world and the devil. And the devil knows that you're no match for him. And he knows how easy it is to beset you, to turn you aside. And by the way, the word beset there, the the Greek word behind that, literally means to encircle or to place itself all around. So the idea there is of a long baggy robe or garments that, that touch the ground, clinging to the limbs of the runner. Do you ever notice where the Bible talks about girding up your loins? What they would do in those days, fishermen and so on, when they were out to fish, they would pull their garments up and they would tuck them in so that they would become more like knickers or uh, they would become like shorts because the garments have been hiked up so that they don't become an impediment to being able to walk and move around easily. That's what this means. The sin with thoughts so easily encircle or place itself all around us, stopping us from running. If you have garments all gathered around your legs, you're not going to be able to run. And sin in your life is going to impede your running the race. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatian church, he said something very appropriate here. In Galatians chapter 5, he said, Ye did run well. You used to run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Oh, was that a word for the backslider? Ye did run well. Who did hinder you? What is it that's kept you back? The idea here is of one who has been in the race, fully engaged. He's been running, but he's been hindered. He's been stopped. He's been held back. And you and I are to lay aside the sin which does so easily beset us. Each and every day we do this. We're to lay it aside by bringing it to the blood of Jesus, keeping short accounts with God, getting rid of the obstacles to our running in the race. You're not going to be running the the race for God when you're running the devil's errands and doing the devil's work. There's a third thing I want to mention here in this motto text. The observers of the race. 
This is interesting. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about, it means encircled, with so great a cloud of witnesses. The idea here, which fits in with running the race, that's in the mind of Paul, is the Olympic arena. Many, many years ago, in fact, it was way back in 1979, I went on a vacation with a friend to Italy. And I remember all the beauties of that country. It was an amazing experience. But we were in the city of Rome, and one of the beautiful attractions of the city of Rome, no, not St. Peter's Basilica, though I did visit there. It's beautiful in its own way, with all the frescoes by Michelangelo. Unbelievable. But the, the Colosseum... You've seen pictures of the Colosseum, no doubt. It's a very, very old structure. It's thousands of years old. The ancient Romans used to hold their games there. It was in there that Christians were thrown to the lions. Christians were made to engage in fights with animals and with other men. It was a terrible place. You can picture it all when you're there in your mind's eye. It's a huge, big arena, and obviously there's been a lot of change through weather and so on, through the centuries. But it's a big arena. You can see the shape of it. It's a big stadium. There's the field down there, and then there's the track around the field. Then there's all the bleachers, if you like, all these stone seats where the spectators would encircle the entire event. And that's what Paul has in mind here, I believe. We're compassed about in this theater, in this stadium. We're enclosed and we're encircled by the great cloud of witnesses, the audience, the spectators, if you like. And we know that that still happens today in modern day athletics in a race. The spectators encircle the track as the runners compete. Now, as Christian runners, I believe that there's a great body of men and women in heaven It includes the angels of God watching our performance in the race. Now, this is an area of some controversy. Some will suggest that the word witnesses here, with reference, of course, to those that are mentioned in Hebrews 11, is referring to their witness unto death in many cases. Not necessarily their present witness, but I beg to disagree. I beg to differ. Read chapter 11. We haven't got time to consider all these verses, but Hebrews 11 continues into chapter 12. And it talks about all those who by faith did this out of the other. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. And so on. And it mentions them there. The patriarchs, the prophets. Various others that are mentioned there. Gideon, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Many others that he didn't have time to mention. The people of God, if you like, who have gone ahead of us to glory. They're already there in heaven. And Paul says it's just as if these are spectators encircling the field as we are running the race here on the earth. Now I know it's in the realm of speculation how much our heavenly onlookers know about us and what's happening here. There are some who have the view that 
those that have gone on to glory don't know anything about what happens on the earth. But I'm not of that mind. I don't agree with that. I feel and I believe that those who have gone on to heaven, because they're just like God in that sense, they're able to see and to know a lot of what happens on the earth, if not all of it, without being affected negatively by it. Because they now look upon things as God looks upon them. They're not sad. They don't have tears. They're not angry. They're not disappointed. They're in glory. God can look upon all the evil things that happen on the earth, but he's not tempted by it. It doesn't taint him. So those who have gone on to glory can be cognizant of certain things that take place on the earth, but they're not tempted or annoyed by it. One thing I do know, there are those in heaven who rejoice when certain things happen on the earth. And I'm referring to Luke chapter 15. Go there with me, please. Luke chapter 15. There are several parables there that Jesus spoke. The parable of the lost silver, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost son. And you'll notice in the first two, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost silver. That whenever the sheep was found by him, he said in verse 6, calling together his friends and neighbors, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. This is the shepherd now speaking. He represents the Lord Jesus, obviously. I say unto you that likewise, in other words, in the same way, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Look at that. Joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Where and when does the sinner repent? He repents on the earth. He repents in time. And yet there's joy in heaven when that takes place. Now go down to the next parable. Verse 9 says, when the woman finds the silver, she says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, in the same way, I say unto you, there is joy, look at it carefully, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Now, some people tend to misquote that in prayer, and they'll thank the Lord that the angels rejoice over one sinner that repents. No doubt they do, but that's not what it says. It says there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Who are in the presence of the angels of God? Well, God himself, obviously. The Lord Jesus himself. And no doubt as you look at the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd who brings the sheep home, saying, Rejoice with me, I've found my sheep which was lost. So God rejoices in the bringing in of his own elect. But I also believe that God's people who have gone on to glory, not, the, not just those mentioned in Hebrews 11, but all the believers who have gone to heaven, God lets them in on the secret. Can you imagine the angels of God and the Lord himself, knowing that a sinner has repented on the earth, but God doesn't bother to tell all the heavenly church that's gathered there. 
Can you imagine that? All the, all the people of God are there and they're wondering, wonder why they're rejoicing. No, they'll not be wondering why they're rejoicing. They know why they're rejoicing. Because they also share in that joy over one sinner that repents. I believe that those who prayed on the earth for sinners to be saved, when they go to heaven and that sinner gets saved, they get to rejoice in that, in their answered prayer. That's what Paul is saying here. God's people in glory rejoice with the Lord and with the angels over one sinner that repenteth. Those patriarchs, those heroes of, heroes of faith, are, as it were, sitting in the heavenly grandstand on the bleachers, if you will, and they're all wearing their laurel wreaths on their brows. They've already run the race. They've gotten the prize. And you should think about that as you're living your Christian life. The angels of God and the inhabitants of heaven are watching you run the race. And I do have biblical evidence for this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it refers to the issue of head covering. There's a very interesting statement that's made there. In verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 11, the Bible says, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head, and the margin tells you that that's a covering in sign that she's under the power of her husband. She's in subjection. But notice, to have power on her head because of the angels. What does that mean? Because of the angels. Because the angels of God are spectators regarding what happens in the church of Jesus Christ. They want to see that things are being done decently and in order. They observe. You know, there's another verse in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. It talks about the salvation of sinners. And it says which things the angels desire to look into. That's an interesting text. You know what rubbernecking is, don't you? You see people doing that on the highways. When there's a crash on the other side, then there's usually a crash on this side too because of all the idiots who are wanting to look and see what's going on and they're not paying attention. Rubbernecking. They're craning their necks, stretching their necks to see what they can see. That's the word here in the Greek. Which things the angels desire to look into Literally, it means they crane their necks. Isn't that amazing? Because they're so interested in the salvation of sinners. Why would that be? Because they have no frame of reference for themselves. The angels don't know what it means to be redeemed. They don't know what it means to have their sins forgiven because they don't have any sins. Those angels in heaven were perfect from the beginning. Jesus didn't die for them. He didn't need to die for them because they have no sins to be forgiven. But boy, are they interested in what it means for a sinner to be forgiven, to have his sins taken away. They crane their necks to look at such a thing because they're curious. They're interested. They're inquiring into the salvation of sinners. Oh, there's a great cloud of witnesses, and it's my own belief. You don't have to share it if you don't want to. But our loved ones that have gone on before, they're witnessing our progress. 
be that as it may, one thing is for certain. The Lord watches as we run. The Lord's watching you. Is he not? You know, once in a while, my dad would come to a track meet that I was involved in. Or especially when I was playing in a soccer game. I remember he came to a final that I was in. And boy, did I want to do well on those occasions. Boy, did I put the effort in so that my dad and my granddad would be proud of me. When I was playing soccer, I wanted to score goals and make assists. And if I was running, I wanted to come first because my dad was watching. I wanted to make him proud. I wanted to bring joy to his heart. I wanted him to be able to say, that's my boy. I want to lift this into a far higher level spiritually. But when I'm running the race, I want the Lord to say of me, that's, that's my boy. He's mine. He's my child. Look at him running the race. Isn't that what happened in Job chapter 1? Read it. That's what happened. The Lord said to the devil, Hast thou considered my servant Job? Have you ever looked at Job? Have you ever seen a mighty godlier man than him? Look at him. He eschews evil. He loves God. He's a faithful man. Look at my servant Job. You're being watched, friend. You're being watched. Not only that, but the world. The world are observers of the race, are they not? The Bible says we are made a spectacle to angels and to the world and to men. To angels and devils even and to men. We're being watched. The world is watching to see genuine Christianity in our lives. If you profess something, worldlings all around you are looking to see if you practice it. If you're genuine. You know, it's interesting in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9. He says in the end of that verse that I just quoted. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. Do you know that the word spectacle... It's a Greek word from which we get the word theater or amphitheater. Isn't that amazing? We're made an amphitheater. We're made that stadium to the world and to angels. So the angels are watching us, that's for sure, and men. They're watching us so that we run the race faithfully. So let's not give occasion to the enemies of the gospel to blaspheme our God and Savior because we're not living for him. You're being watched. And that'll be true of every day this year. Let us run the race with patience. Let's move on quickly to the object of the race. We've talked about the observers and the obstacles and the origin. The object of the race. Who or what is the object of this race that we run? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author. It means the beginner and finisher of our faith. See, this is the secret of running a good race. Having your eyes fixed upon him because he is standing at the finish line. We're running ever toward him. We should ever be running to please him. He is our object. How we need to keep our eyes on the Lord. How I need to keep my eyes on the Lord. How I get into trouble. How I go astray and get discouraged and downcast. 
when I take my eyes off the Lord, He has to be my object as I run the race. I'm sure you'll agree with me, a lot of us get too concerned with the performance of our brethren and sisters than with our own running of the race. Now, there's nothing wrong with seeking to help other believers and considering others if they're overtaken in a fault, for example. But sometimes we want to see how somebody else is doing spiritually instead of being concerned about ourselves. We get too concerned about what others are doing or not doing in the race. Because we're not looking to Jesus, we're looking to them. He's the object of the race. See, at the judgment seat, I'm not going to be giving an account for other Christians. Nor they for me. I'm going to be giving an account for myself. Romans 14 from verse 10. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There will be such a judgment. Even for those who don't believe in it, there will be such a judgment. We will give an account. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess to God. Even the skeptics, the unbelievers, the bad mouthers of Christianity, they'll all be there. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, sometimes when you're running a race, particularly a long-distance race, and I did run a few of those, there are people who drop out. There are people who faint and fall. They just can't stick it. Some get dehydrated, they stop. They run out of juice. They run out of gas. Now, spiritually, if you're looking to Jesus as you run the race, it's not going to affect your running when others faint and fall, it will not affect your running of the race. You're going to continue to run, no matter what others do. You know, sometimes you might hear a message and you might think to yourself, boy, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. That would have been good for them. But maybe that message was more applicable to you than you thought it was. Maybe you've heard the story of the man who came to church and every time he met the preacher at the door he would say, oh, it's a great message, Pastor. It's a pity Mr. So-and-so wasn't here to hear that. Or it's a pity Mrs. So-and-so wasn't present to hear that. And the pastor used to get really frustrated by that. And he used to think, well, I wonder when this guy himself is ever going to get the message. So there came one Sunday, the man showed up and everybody else was on vacation or sick and he was the only one in the congregation. So the pastor thought, well, he's going to get it today. <laughs> and he went to the door, he shook the preacher's hand, and he said, preacher, that was a great message. It's a pity Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so weren't here to hear it. See, he never did get the message. Never applied it to himself. I hope we're not like that. It's so easy, isn't it, to pick holes and find fault in others? even other Christians, that's not going to help us to run the race. We're not to look to the other runners. We're to look to the one who's standing at the winning post, at the finishing line, the one who's standing at the tape. When I was a sprinter, I was being coached. I used to be told, keep running through the line, not to the line, but through the tape. That way you might win by just a slight head. You run right through the line. You don't stop, and you're not concerned about the guy on your left or the right. Because if you don't look straight ahead, you'll not stay in your lane. 
You'll step out of your lane, perhaps, when you look around and you'll be disqualified. You look straight ahead. And we're running a race, friends, in which we are to look straight ahead. By the way, this word for looking unto Jesus in Hebrews 12 too, the Greek literally signifies to turn the eyes away from other things and fix them on one certain thing. That's good, isn't it? Looking unto Jesus. In other words, looking unto him in such a way that you're not having your eyes on other things and fixed on other things. Oh, that we might look away from everything and everyone to Jesus as we run the race. One other thing. And that's the outcome of the race. Looking unto Jesus, that's the object, but there's the outcome of the race. And here we go to 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all. In other words, everybody who's in the race is running, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain. What Paul is saying is that there could be 10 runners in the race and they all are running, but only one will get the gold medal. There's only one who gets the laurel wreath, as it was in his day. And by the way, that is what he was talking about in verse 25, because halfway through that verse he says, Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. What's a corruptible crown? It's a crown that was weaved out of laurel wreaths. And way back in the early 90s, I believe it was, when the Olympic Games were held in Greece again, that summer, they, they reintroduced that kind of thing for the Athens Games. When those who were first, second, and third were on the podium, when they're playing their anthems, they had these little laurel wreaths on their heads. An incor- a corruptible crown. That happened in Paul's day. And of course, that laurel wreath, if it was real, it was made out of leaves, but it would eventually wither and the leaves would die and it would corrupt So Paul says they're running in this Olympic race to obtain a crown that corrupts. A laurel wreath that will wither and die, but we an incorruptible crown. That's what we're running for. One that doesn't fade. Now today at the end of a race, the winner gets a gold medal in the Christian race. Every believer is going to cross the finishing line. I'm not in any doubt about that. Every believer will make it to glory. Some years ago at the Olympic Games, there was a very touching event that took place. One of the runners in a middle distance race was a guy who had gone through a lot of adversity in his life. He was an athlete from Great Britain called Derek Redmond. He was running in the race and just as they were going down the home straight, he pulled up with an obvious hamstring injury. And if you ever had a hamstring injury, it hurts. Especially when you're going full pelt, it really hurts. He had to stop and he was laying on the track and he was in tears. This guy had trained for four years for this event and his whole Olympic dream was shattered in seconds. And there he lay on the track and of course the cameras were on him. Eventually, they had been taken up with those that crossed the line and won the race first, second, and third, but then all of a sudden they cut away and the producer put his camera onto Derek Redmond. He was laying there on the track and in just a few moments, somebody came out of the bleachers, came over the fence and ran onto the track. 
It was Derek Redmond's father who happened to be his trainer. And the camera stayed on them till he helped his son to his feet, put his arm around his shoulder, got him to put his arm around his, and the pair of them hobbled their way down the track to cross the finishing line. That was all so that he could say, I finished the race. Oh, I didn't win, but I finished the race. And I thought, what a tremendous spirit that guy showed. And that's the kind of spirit that we need to have as believers. Even if you feel like you're hobbling along in your Christian life, and you feel that you've not got just one, but both of your spiritual hamstrings are gone, you're going to keep pressing on because Jesus is at your side. Your Father is with you. He's crossing the finishing line with you. Not one of the Lord's people are going to be lost. Not one of his elect will perish. I don't believe for one minute there will be any empty seats in heaven. None. There'll be nobody there that wasn't supposed to be there. And there's nobody going to be missing who should have been there. However, though all Christians will make it to heaven, they will strive for it. That's biblical. That's the doctrine of sanctification. We're to make the effort. We are to run every day of our lives like the winner of the gold medal. Now, not all of them get the gold medal, but we're to strive for that reward. That's the word that Paul uses, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Striveth. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. It means he's self-controlled. He's disciplined. It means that he's one who watches his diet, his resting habits, his sleep habits. If you ever talk to an athlete who is a professional athlete, they'll make it clear to you that they've got it down to a fine art. They have nutritionists. They have all kinds of people to help them. They eat right. They sleep right. They do everything so that they will perform to the maximum of their ability. Why do they do that? Because they're focused. They have a laser focus. They're headed for that event. They want to win that event. They'll do everything they can to win it within the rules they're very disciplined. You don't see guys running in Olympic races who are out of shape. It doesn't happen. They're disciplined. They're temperate. Because they've got a goal in mind. And that's to try to win the race. They're going to try to do their best. I wonder, have I done my best for Jesus? Who died upon the cruel tree. Every man that agonizes for the mastery, he's temperate, he's self-controlled in all things. He's disciplined. My time is gone. But I just want to say that the Lord has set before us this year a race that we have to run. And what's the secret of running that race? We're back to it again. Looking unto Jesus, the beginner and the finisher of our faith. That's the secret of Christianity. 
looking unto Jesus. You'll never get into trouble when you're looking unto Jesus. You'll never get discouraged if you're looking unto Jesus. You won't be despondent if you're looking unto Jesus. The problem is, when we take our eyes off the Lord, like Peter, we begin to sink. We need to run the race looking unto Jesus. And if there's one that's never entered the race, I trust the Lord will get you into that race today. He'll save you, make you a new creature, get you clothed and ready to run. And if you're already a runner in the race, may the Lord give you a new burst of energy today. People who run long-distance marathons will tell you, it's 26 miles, but there's a point in the race always when they hit what's called the wall. And at that point, they feel like quitting. They feel like they just can't go on. But then as they do run through that pain barrier and they keep running through the wall, it's amazing that they get another burst of energy, like a second wind. And it's as if they're starting the race all over again. They've just gotten through that crisis. And there's many a crisis in our Christian lives. And the Lord allows us to go through those. And even though we feel like we're going to stop and we feel like we're never going to be able to run on, the Lord gives us another burst of energy. Another burst of wind and we're able to keep running. May the Lord do that for all of us today for his honor and for his glory.